Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. I don't know about you, but I have really enjoyed the sermon series on the book of Philippians. Uh, it has uh, really been awesome and very helpful. I've grown in my appreciation for that book quite a lot, uh, studying it more than I think I ever have before. And so it's a joy to me to be here today to preach on uh, the next couple verses, Philippians 4, verses 8 and 9. But before we get to our text, let me give a little bit of a preface. I'm reading a book about the Puritans right now, and it's called Worldly Saints. And I really like that title, Worldly Saints. The author makes the case that the title fits the Puritans because they were all about how to live in this world while keeping their eyes fixed on God. I think that's a good thing for us to aspire to as a church. How do we live now in this world, but keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ? I think it's one of the main themes of this book of Philippians. Let me show you what I mean. Philippians is a tender letter of friendship from the Apostle Paul to the saints in Philippi. There are many practical, you could say worldly, examples of care and concern and friendship in the letter, topics of everyday life. He says, for instance, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every, day, in my every prayer for you all. Uh, I long for you with all affection of Jesus Christ. He commands them uh, to do all things without grumbling or disputing. He talks about future plans and about how he plans to send uh, Timothy to them. He exhorts a couple ladies to get along with each other. I urge Euodia and Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. So these are tender words of love and friendship mixed with practical exhortations about how to get along in this world, day-to-day stuff. But of course, the book is packed with spiritual references that look upward with the eyes of faith beyond this world. These are references that point to our present reality and future hope, but with the lens of faith. Philippians, for instance, is where Paul declares that our citizenship is in heaven right now. Three times he refers to the day of Christ as that point in the future that he's looking forward to expectantly. Paul repeatedly directs his readers, uh, directs their attention upward to look with the eyes of faith for the day of Christ. And then in in chapter 1, there is that passage that's so memorable uh, that expresses Paul's tension of being in this world and wanting to be in the next. He writes, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on the, in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. The tension. You feel the tension. How do we live in this world when we have received, already received, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus? This question has dogged Christians for thousands of years, and it's a vital question no matter what age you live in. 
And we would do well to study the example of Christians before us. So I'm going to put a little Sunday school hat on here and kind of go through a little bit of history. Within a couple hundred years after Jesus, a movement of Christian monasticism started and developed. And these were men and women who wanted to devote themselves to God. And so they they attempted to do so by becoming ascetics. Ascetics, sorry. They denied themselves bodily comforts in the hope of spiritual gain. And often they separated themselves from society, either completely, they went and lived in a cave by themselves, or they would go and live in the desert in small communities with a few other like-minded people. That's one way of trying to live in this world with our eyes fixed on the next. Skipping over a thousand years later, the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s was certainly a theological conflict, right? It had to do with theological issues. But it was also an example of this very same tension. And one of the most striking examples of this is how the Protestant Reformation brought dignity to the Christian home. You didn't have to be a celibate priest to really devote yourself to God. You could follow God and have a wife and children and be a shoemaker or a lawyer or a bricklayer. Those things had dignity. Now, I've already made reference to the Puritans. And, of course, the Puritans were a direct descendant of the Protestant Reformation. They were the English uh, version, outworking of it. The the Puritans were English Protestants in the 15 and 1600s who wanted to uh, get the uh, Church of England free of the practices and customs and beliefs of the Roman Catholic Church. They wanted to reform the, the Church of England or at times even separate from it entirely. They were focused on making it so that everyone could read the Bible for themselves and apply it to every aspect of their lives. Every part of life was up for negotiation And the Bible was how they decided uh, how to live. And so there again, you have a, a, a group of people trying to figure out how to live in this world with the Bible, with Scripture as our guide. Now, by the 1900s, the early 1900s, uh, and I'm thinking especially, I know it, it happened in other countries as well, but in this country, uh, many formerly Christian institutions and churches had abandoned the fundamental beliefs of the reformers. According to them, Christianity itself needed to be reevaluated in light of modern science and the textual criticism of the Bible. Modern knowledge and the new discoveries we were making through science and technology and the like were to be the cornerstone of belief and not scripture. Many denied that Jesus was God, that he died and rose again, or that he even existed at all. And a new movement began in this country uh, in response to that called Christian fundamentalism. And again, it stressed the trustworthiness of the Bible. The fundamentalists, as they were called, were trying to figure out how to hold on to Scripture in this brave new world of science and technology. And again, each of these groups and movements in church history were at least in part about the tension of how to know God and follow him in this present age. And I submit to you, here we are again. You and I have this very same problem today. 
How should we live as Christians in our present context? To what degree and how should we separate from the world around us, from society around us? You know, the Amish are, are big in this part of the world. They've made decisions about how to separate from the world around them. How should we do it? We live in the instant pot of the Christian life, the pressure cooker of of the Christian life. The monks and the nuns of early Christian monasticism represent one extreme example of how to separate from society. And of course, to some degree, that always sounds attractive, right? It sounds kind of attractive to go out into the woods and and, uh, be free of all the temptations of of all you people, right? All those dirty people over there. We think we'll be less vulnerable to sin and temptation if we just leave all those dirty people behind. But of course, that's bunk. Your sin is going to follow you wherever you go. And the the monks, the monastics of thousands of years ago, found out while they were sitting there alone in their cave that there they were, right? With their sin and their temptation. There is no easy way out of this pressure cooker. There's no easy way out of this pressure cooker. In our passage today, Paul gives us solid teaching for how to live in this world while having our eyes fixed on the day of Christ. And it begins with our minds being transformed. And then it moves to, from what we believe to how we live. So let's read our passage today. Philippians 4, verses 8 and 9. Finally, brethren... Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, Verse 8 contains a list of adjectives that describe the kind of things that we should dwell on. But first I want to spend some time on the phrase itself, dwell on these things. What does that mean? What does it mean to dwell on something? Well, here's a bunch of synonyms. To think, to consider, to mull over, to ponder, evaluate, cogitate, ruminate, to think about. These are the things that we, sh- we should think about, things like this. We are supposed to turn our attention to things that are true and right and pure and so on. Now, in the matter of our attention, in the matter of what we think about, we are like a woman who has been beaten repeatedly and told all through her growing up that she's trash. The highest aspiration we have for our tra- attention and thought is to doom scroll through Facebook or read about the life of famous TV actors. In the matter of our attention, we are like a dog looking for breakfast in the trash out back. And if it all comes back up, oh well, we just go right back at it. That's the way we think about our own attention. That's what we give our minds to. But what if you aren't trash? What if what you put in your brain actually matters? What if there was more to think about than the slop that they serve on TV or YouTube or TikTok? About 500 years ago, there was a monk who had read the Bible and he knew all about Jesus. He knew all about the Bible. 
but he hated Jesus. He said that Jesus was his jailer, like a hangman of his soul, like the executioner of his soul. Now, can you imagine that? A monk devoted to the pursuit of God who hated God. Isn't that weird? But by the mercy of God and meditating on his word day and night, he began to understand that Jesus was no jailer. He began to understand that God's righteousness was a free gift through faith. When he started to understand that, he said these words, Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. Of course, the man I'm talking about was Martin Luther. And as you know, he lit the whole world on fire with the message of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Now, what had changed? What was different? Nothing. Nothing in his circumstances at that time. You know, when he nailed his theses on the, the door at Wittenberg, nothing was different. Nothing had changed. His external circumstances were the same. But of course, everything had changed. Everything. His mind had been transformed. It had been renewed. I want us to aspire to have our minds transformed. This is essential to life in Jesus Christ. We must get our minds out of the gutter. And, and how do I convince us of this? This is one of the essential tasks I feel like I have today. How can I convince us that we need to get our minds out of the gutter? Well, the first thing I want to say is your mind is a precious thing. Your attention is one of the most valuable things you have, right? The the value you have is not in your bank account. It's the attention you have. It's precious. Some of us pump weights or go on jogs. Some sit in front of the mirror and put makeup on. Some of us count calories and are very careful about what we put into our bodies. But what about your mind? Your mind has to be cared for and cultivated. How do I know this? I know this, for one, because Scripture repeatedly speaks about the importance of our minds. I could pick from many examples of this in Scripture in the New Testament, but I'll just pick one, uh, and that's in Romans 8. It says this, The mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. How do we move from setting our minds on the flesh to, minds of, to, to, to setting it on the spirit? But I also know this in a more worldly uh, way, and I'm sure I've made this point before, but I don't tire of making this. Uh, I know that your attention is precious because corporations pay huge sums of money to get your attention. Companies worth trillions of dollars work feverishly to get your attention and to keep it. Have you ever said to Facebook, no, you're not paying me enough for this? It's too valuable, you know? Your attention is valuable. Take care of it. Okay, so let's talk about this list. I'm, not, I, I'm going to generally go in the order of the items listed here, uh, but I'm going to pair some of the words together instead of taking them individually. And I want to make some general comments about the list before we get into the particulars. First, uh, this list is a standard that we can use to evaluate the flood of images and sounds and words that come at us from everywhere, every day. We are supposed to make judgments. 
This means that it should act like a filter. This is a very, like the concept of a filter is something that we need to have as Christians in this modern day when we just have a flood of stuff coming at us. We have to have a filter that removes the bad, keeps the bad out, and lets the good in. We aren't supposed to filter our attention according to what your friends think, according to the changing expectations of our culture. You know, the, the rating on the movie might be helpful, but it's not the filter, right? We are supposed to filter according to God's word. So that, first of all, this is a standard. Second, it is a standard that we can use to make judgments about truth, goodness, and beauty, all three. The Bible does not confine itself to what we might strictly refer to as religion. Okay? It does not say that, they, that it does not present to us a standard of morality, but then leave uh, the standard for truth or beauty out there somewhere else. No, the Bible is for all of life. It'll help us make intellectual, moral, and aesthetic judgments. Third, this list is not comprehensive. We should not be stingy and tight about this list, like a girl trying to see how short she can make her skirt before her dad will notice, right? This is not the way we're supposed to be. There are many other places in the Bible that can help us decide how to spend our time and attention and our thoughts. And so a list like this should get us thinking in the right direction. It should should get us thinking about how broadly we can apply these principles and go looking for others elsewhere. Fourth and finally, each item in this list is positive, but it has an implied negative opposite. So, to take the first item in the list for an example, we are supposed to think about what is true and not what is false. Okay? Now, there's a reason this is first on the list. This is the first and most vital test. Everything else in this list will fail as a test if your starting point is false. Romans 1 says that men suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. This is not simple forgetfulness. This is active opposition. Like when you feel guilty, but you're working overtime to suppress those feelings and those thoughts that keep coming back to you. We lie to ourselves, and we readily believe others when they lie to us. So we must start outside of ourselves. We have to start with God and his word because that is the sure foundation of what is true. And this should be so freeing to us as Christians because we believe that all truth is God's truth. I mentioned earlier that Christian fundamentalism was an, a, a response to the attack upon Christianity uh, of, of modern knowledge, so-called whether it's scientists talking about creation and evolution or theologians trying to pick apart the Bible. And I was very concerned about this uh, as a young man. Um, I was very inquisitive. I liked to read. I remember uh, having a a non-Christian biology teacher in like 10th grade maybe. And I got to talking to her about evolution and I just, I wanted to know, I wanted to know about it. I wanted to know about the other side. And so she gave me a book to read. I read The Beak of the Finch. I still remember that title way back in 10th grade to understand what, where they're coming from about, a, uh, about uh, evolution. And I was often very anxious and fearful about these challenges myself. You know, what if the Bible isn't true? What if, what if, what if? And, I, and um, if this is you, 
and particularly if you're a high school student or maybe in college, I want to give you two things that have been very helpful to me as, we, uh, as you sort, out, uh, sort these kinds of things out. First of all, it's very important to understand the difference between a doubt and a question. A doubt <clears throat> is kind of like a fog that doesn't have an answer. They leave you muddled. Doubts leave you muddled and anxious. You know, they often have no real answer. You know, if you ask a question like, what if the Bible isn't true? It's such a vague, dumb question that it just doesn't even have an answer. But a question, something specific, is the starting point to a discovery. It's hopeful, right? We should come with questions and seek answers to the questions, not with doubts that are simply paralyzing. If God is the God of all truth, which he is, we don't need to worry about questions, Questions are not a threat to God. We can, come, we can bring our questions to God and find answers for them, okay? But the second principle I'll say is that I, I believe that, un, that uh, part of growth in maturity and wisdom and coming to terms with the truth that we can find in this world is coming to terms with the fact that there are some questions that cannot be answered in this life. It's hard to come to terms with that. That's difficult. Uh, But it's true. And just because someone makes a confident assertion that they have maybe answered a particular question does not necessarily make it so. There are questions that will not be answered in this life. And that's okay. That's okay. God will sort it out. Now, taking a little pivot to our popular culture, considering our popular culture, is there any question that we are being lied to constantly today? Television, social media, advertisements, video games, movies, music, fake news, so much of it is pure applesauce. I don't know where I got that. Maybe P.G. Woodhouse. Pure applesauce. You are not immune to the lies that are being poured at you constantly. You are not immune. We like to tell ourselves that we can consume all that garbage and not be affected. And I just want to say, tell that to the advertising executives I already mentioned. There is, they only need 30 seconds in front of you. And they will, be, they will change your thoughts and your behavior. That's all they need. Of course it will affect you. And there's only one thing that you can do. You have to turn it off. You have to turn off the lies. In the book 1984 by George Orwell, the people are all required to have a TV on at all times in their house. They're not allowed to turn it off. Why? So that by sheer dint of constant repetition, the people would believe what's being told to them. And of course, the difference between that dystopian novel and real life is that we've done everything voluntarily. We're not under compulsion. But brothers and sisters... We have to turn off the lies. You have to turn it off. You have to turn it off. Turning off the lies, though, is not enough. You also have to turn on the truth. Our standard is God's word, and we should be unapologetic and unashamed about making it the book that we read and talk about and think about the most. And have you read this thing? Do you have any idea what's in this thing? It's amazing. It's amazing. Stephen Baker likes to say that you have to work hard to make history boring. And he's absolutely right. 
you have, to make, you have to work hard to make Scripture seem boring. Some of it's hard to get into, but come on, guys. It's endlessly fascinating. Our faith is word-based. I'm not against movies, but there is a clear emphasis on being people of the book. We must read and study the Bible. And if you struggle to find the time and inclination to sit down and read, then listen to it, you know? Find a way. In God's kindness, we have many ways of getting God's word into us. But of course, remember, all truth is God's truth. We don't have to limit ourselves to the Bible. There's just, I mean, there's a huge variety of things that we can feast on. We have more options now than ever before, and we have the blessing and the burden of having to have that filter that I'm talking about to choose what to read and to watch and to listen. But essential to that filter is that it must be true. Is it true? Now, moving on. Whatever is honorable and of good repute. Years ago, C.S. Lewis said, we make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. This is true. We have been in the business of turning honor and shame upside down for a very long time in the Western world. And um, that's a shame. (laughs) But there is some encouragement to be had, and that is that it can't last forever. I don't know. Some people don't find that encouraging. I think that's encouraging. It can't last forever. Uh, The truth is that even those who are about as far away from being a Christian as you can possibly imagine know about honor and shame. Like, you can't promote liars and cheats forever. It just doesn't doesn't even work, right? Uh, And and the truth is, even non-Christians know about honor and shame. It's part of the common grace that God has given to us. There is no law against things like self-control, prudence, justice, endurance, courage, chastity, or integrity. These characteristics may not be universally honored in our time, but on the other hand, they always have been honored, and they will be again. They are the, kind, they are the characteristics, they are the, the, the marks of character that will earn you the kind of reputation that will last. So listen to this, these names got a list of names here of people that have been honored in one way or another by cultures around them. Mahatma Gandhi, Nelson Mandela, Mother Teresa, Harriet Tubman, Martin Luther King Jr., Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Now, this is a very different group of, uh, very varied group of people, and certainly they're not all saints, but there's a reason they're given honor in our culture. They've exhibited something honorable. You know, maybe they just endured. I don't know. In each case, it's a little different. But we know something about honor and shame. And just because we are currently in a time when we're, we're, you know, in the business of shaming things that are honorable and and giving honor to things that are shameful, doesn't mean that we need to succumb to that, guys. We don't need to succumb to that. We, though our culture is cynical and world-weary, and even though... We only have anti-heroes anymore. Like there's no heroes, it's just anti-heroes. We do not need to succumb to that. We do not need to become jaded and cynical. Part of the glory of the Reformation is that they restored honor to common things. Being a father and holding down a job is an honorable thing. 
That's an honorable thing. Taking care of your children is honorable. Sticking with one man or one woman for life is an honorable thing. Let's not be cynical and world-weary. Let's aim to be honorable, to think about things that are honorable. All right, whatever is right and pure, or to think about whatever is right or righteous and whatever is pure. Now, this righteousness is established by God's law, right? It is the measure with which we determine what is righteous and what is not. And why don't we like this? Why does this make us feel uncomfortable? Why wouldn't we want to evaluate everything we think about based on God's law? Well, in the uh, plethora of options we have before us of things to feast our mind and our eyes on, uh, we may think that this is too limiting, right? That maybe the things that we'll be left with are dull and boring. We may think that God's law will be suffocating and confining. And if that's you, I want to urge you to consider whether or not you are a Christian. Whether or not you are a Christian. The psalmist cries, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. The law of God is not a straitjacket. It's not a prison cell. If you think that, you're thinking like Martin Luther before the scales fell from his eyes. God's law is a demonstration of his good and beautiful character. And there is a whole feast of things for us to think about and enjoy. And never in human history have we had access to what we have access to now. If we're feeling constricted and bored by God's law, it's because of a poverty inside of us. It's because our souls are small and petty and mean. It's like we're sitting on the beach by the ocean and we're frustrated because we can't find enough sand and water to play in. It's insane. It's insane. Now, the other reason we might be tempted to... to, uh, not want to use God's law, God's righteousness as a filter, is because we think it's impossible. We tried fighting our lust, and it's just too hard, and we've given up. But not giving up is what faith is all about. It is endurance in the face of trial and temptation. It's confessing and trying again after another fall. If you're tempted to be cynical and to give up, Could it be that perhaps you have too high a view of yourself, that you are too proud to acknowledge that you have some perfect vision of who you are and what you're capable of? Please, come, confess your sins. Give us the joy of introducing you to yourself. (laughs) Yes, you are that bad. God's law is there precisely to help us see who we really are. And Christians are uniquely equipped to see the true picture of ourselves and not become cynical and pessimistic. Why? Because our hope is not in our own performance. It's in Jesus Christ. We don't have to be afraid of the law, and we certainly have no excuse to become cynical. Because Jesus has made a way for us. So we should say, bring it on. Bring it on. Now, let me talk about purity for a minute. We are swimming in an ocean of sexual immorality and impurity and perversion. Why do we put up with it? Why? Why do you allow it? Why do we allow it into our homes? This is one of the main places where we must be set apart and different from the world. 
and where, where there are no qualifications, no ifs, ands, or buts, no quid pro quos, we must be pure. In the book of Acts, we see how uh, the church that had been a Jewish thing had, was opening up to the Gentiles, right? And it's fascinating. In, in Acts chapter 15, there's this uh, discussion. The church leaders got together and were trying to figure out how much of the old Jewish laws did the Gentiles have to keep to be Christians. And, and, and when they talked, after they had talked about it, there was just a very short list of four things that they told the Gentiles that they needed to make sure to do. They didn't include the whole, uh, the whole Jewish laws and customs. But on that list was that the Gentiles must ab- abstain from fornication. That really stuck out to me. It really stuck out to me because the Gentiles were largely permitted to live according to their previous customs. But a firm line was drawn when it came to sexual purity. That could not be allowed. Sexual impurity was not allowed. And that same line must exist today. And of course, sexual purity goes far beyond simply physical intimacy. You know, illicit physical intimacy. It has to do with everything related to our sexuality. It has to do with how we dress, how we carry ourselves. If you haven't read... um, Tim Bailey's book, The Grace of Shame, I commend it to you. Please get a copy in the church office and read it because it's, it, it'll open up your eyes to all the ways in which sexuality will touch so many different parts of your life. Okay? We must be pure. This must be one of the most obvious ways that we are separate from the world. And it's okay if we're made fun of. You know, that's fine. That's fine. We must be pure. Next, whatever is lovely, we were made to seek out that which is good and true and beautiful. We were made to delight in it, to be ravished by it. Now, we live in a time of constant spectacles, right? The Super Bowl or concerts or whatever, TV shows, video games. Constant, we have constant opportunity to set before our eyes things, spectacles of one kind or another. And there's a sense in which we were made for that very thing, right? We were made to worship, to, to, to focus our eyes on things that are worth worshiping. But of course, the trouble is that we so often set our eyes and wor- on things of this world and worship things of this world rather than finding our supreme delight and joy in God. God has laid a feast before us to enjoy, And all of it should turn our attention to him, but it speaks to the generous liberality that God has given us in this world. We can love, he's given us so many things to find interest in and to love to be captivated by. We can even love things that other people hate. Take, for example, going on a good run, right? There are some people in this room that think that that's a horrible, no good, very bad idea, right? Going on a jog is just terrible. But there's others in this room who get excited at just the mention of it. Like they can just feel the endorphins coursing through their body already. And what does that variety of response mean? Well, it means that there's a great diversity in our human experience and our likes and dislikes, and that's a good thing. It's part of our finiteness. God has given us a huge amount of freedom and space to, for what to enjoy, and we don't all have to like the same thing. 
But the freedom we have must still be measured against the standard of God and his word. And we must not be naive and foolish. Proverbs 1 says, The waywardness of the naive will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. In Hebrews 5, it says that the mature, through practice, will train their senses to discern between good and evil. So life is very complicated, right? Life is very complicated. Some things are good, you just know that they're good. Some things are just bad, you just know that they're bad. But there's a lot of stuff in between. And it takes work to figure it all out. So if you're trying to live as a Christian in this world, you have to constantly be working at getting your filter to work right. You have to, uh, work, you'll have to decide, and, and a lot of what that'll mean is that you'll have to pass on things that are of mixed value, right? Sometimes you'll have to pass on uh, something that will be fantastic in one sense, but really terrible in another sense. I'll just give, I'll hazard uh, one personal example. I don't read Stephen King. I don't, I'm sure he's a genius. I bet he's a fantastic writer. I suspect I would enjoy much of what he's written. But I also know that he's written many vile things, and I, I don't trust him. And so I don't read him. Now, life is complicated, right? We all have to make these decisions, Uh, What should you read and watch and listen to? We, in this congregation, need to have the space to have vigorous discussion. We should argue and talk about what is permissible, both in our homes, in our church body. Uh, But the standard must always be God's word. How many of you, I'm dating myself, I guess, have had the experience of throwing old CDs away? Having to throw some CDs away right? Some of you younger, maybe you had to delete a movie or something on your computer. <laughs> Cleaning your, your, your hard drive of music or movies that you know that maybe you once enjoyed, maybe you had an appetite for before, but you know you really need to get rid of it. If we're using the filter of God's word right, we will give many things a pass, even if there's something commendable about them. Now, I want to say something to you young people here, and I want the parents to to pay close attention to this, okay? It's a little secret that maybe kids, uh, young people, uh, high schoolers in particular, uh, you, you probably have thought about already, and that's this. Very soon, you will be out of your parents' home. You will get to watch and read and listen to whatever you want to listen to or watch and read. No one will be telling you what to do. Right now, you may be frustrated by the limitations your parents are putting on you, but you need to understand that they're doing it because they love you. They care about you. We naturally go for things that are harmful to us, and this is especially true when we're young. So the goal is for us to have our senses trained so that we can exercise self-control. Remember, The waywardness of the naive will kill them. And so parents, you cannot simply cloister your kids and expect them to have their senses trained. I'm not saying, uh, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you should put them in bad situations. But they have to actually have their senses trained, right? 
you have to have some expectation that by the time they get out of the house, they will be able to make those discernments for the, those decisions for themselves. And that's not the same thing as simply blocking everything. Does that make sense? All right. Now, the final couple things on the list. Anything excellent or praiseworthy? We're supposed to think about things that are excellent and praiseworthy. I consider these last two items to be a summation of the list. They point to that which is most true and beautiful and good. And so they should remind us of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Our hearts should be ravished by Jesus Christ. He is most glorious and beautiful. When we read in the pages of Scripture about his life and his example, his humble teaching of love and mercy and his death, his resurrection, our hearts should, should be inflamed. And when we think of the promise of his return, when he will set all things right, these things should delight us. We should find our hope and our joy in Jesus Christ. He is most excellent and praiseworthy. Now, that's all verse 8. I'm just going to be very, very brief on verse 9 here. Jody brought up how the, there's a pattern in the New Testament of talking about doctrine and then moving to practice. What we think and then how we live. This is, uh, this is the typical way. You change the way you think and the natural progression is that you will change the way that you live. But verse 9 uh, teaches us to focus our attention in one more way that I think will make us feel very uncomfortable, made me feel uncomfortable when I read it. The Apostle Paul tells the Philippians to focus their attention on him, to focus their attention on what they had learned and received and heard and seen in him. Now, this is an important part of our Christian faith. Our faith is not simply information being transferred right? It is life together. It is discipleship in tangible, physical ways. We're celebrating the Lord's Supper in, uh, this, later in this service. And it is an example of the way that our faith is tangible. And so, yeah, you are supposed to pay attention to the life and teaching of your pastors and elders. Do you hear that, pastors and elders? They are supposed to pay attention to you. But parents, those of you who are older, we must aspire to something higher than do as I say and not as I do. Right? These things need to fill our minds so that they work their their way out in our lives. If we actually implement this list as a filter in our day-to-day life, we will limit the, our access and exposure to garbage, and that will make us seem weird, right? You'll do crazy things like skip out on a movie that your friends are going to because you know that you shouldn't watch it. And you won't know what people are talking about if they're talking about a game or a, a TV show or something. And so you're going to stick out in certain ways. But that's, that's small potatoes. If, if our minds are transformed, we will live in a way that's totally foreign, in our, in our current culture of lawlessness. And last week, uh, Pastor Jody talked about how the Romans had an explicitly religious way of relating to the state and to their emperor. And we as a culture are increasingly having a religious way of relating to our uh, uh, government. 
right? In Roman times, they offered sacrifices and offerings to Caesar as God. It was just part of being a good citizen of Rome. So you did it along with everyone else. But not the Christians. They refused. Christians had been bought by the blood of Jesus, and so their worship and loyalty belonged to him. They could no longer take part in that idolatry, and so they were killed. They were executed and martyred. We have every, every possibility of facing those kinds of pressures today. As you practice these things, as your mind is transformed and that flows to living in a way that's so different than the culture around you, you may be ridiculed and laughed at because of your faith, but you might also lose your job or be passed over for a scholarship or be cut off from family or friends. Do you love Jesus? Are you ravished by his beauty? Then like Paul, you'll consider these other things to be less important, to be even worthless in comparison. So again, I started this sermon today by saying that I wanted to talk about how to live in the pressure cooker of this life while we have our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. And I've tried to express that there, uh, there's a million ways to do it. The world is a veritable banquet before us of options. Uh, and many, many times we'll be faced with questions that are, are difficult and challenging. We need to be tender with one another as we make these decisions. We do need to argue about them and talk about them and, and work together, help each other sort it all out. But it's no, it's no surprise to me that in the book of Philippians, Paul has multiple exhortations for people to be of one mind and to be united and to to be uh, united together. But Paul was in the pressure cooker of life, and so are you. The pressure may be so intense that you want to get out of it, but the only way out is when this life is over, and that will happen in God's timing. In the meantime, we are to practice these things, and he goes on, doesn't he? And what? And the God of peace will be with you. Now, isn't that amazing? I have no promise here today that you can get out easily of this pressure cooker. But God has promised that he will be with you. You don't need to run. You don't need to hide. The God of peace will be with you. Do you believe him? Do you trust him? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your tender, precious promises here. We thank you so much uh, for your guide, uh, the guide of your word to teach us how to live in this life. We pray that you would strengthen us for this work, that we would not grow faint-hearted, but that we would endure and be, be perfected in our endurance, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.